This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Sean Ailing, regular host of Vox Conversations. But I'm here today to introduce an episode hosted by my dear friend and colleague, Zach Beecham, who you may know as co-host of Vox's Worldly Podcast. For this week's episode of Vox Conversations, Zach talks with author and U.S. editor of The New Statesman, Emily Tampkin. They talk about the life and legacy of George Soros and how a Hungarian-born billionaire philanthropist became a transatlantic boogeyman. Here is Zach. There are few names in politics that conjure up as strong feelings as George Soros. For some people, he is an omnipresent boogeyman, manipulating everything behind the scenes in order to bring in immigrants or undermine certain governments. For other people, he's sponsored cultural life around the world. He's a prescient philanthropist who has ushered in democracy in a variety of different countries. And for still other people, he is a, an example of what's gone wrong with capitalism. He is a person who, quote-unquote, broke the Bank of England and helped cause the Asian financial crisis and illustrates the tensions between a system that relies on the wealthy to do good for the world and a system that allows the wealthy to accumulate so much power through potentially destabilizing means. So which of these people is the real George Soros, and what is his actual legacy? With me today is Emily Tamkin, the U.S. editor of The New Statesman. Emily has written a book on Soros that tries to cut through all of the different political narratives surrounding him and give us a, a deeper understanding of his actual influence, which is profound, if often overstated and often in a troubling propagandistic and anti-Semitic way. Emily, I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, the, your book was fantastic. Uh, and I enjoyed reading it. I am so happy to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for your kind words. No, no, it's great. I've, I've read a lot about this person because Emily and I share an interest in Hungarian politics. And Soros is, of course, Hungarian by background uh, and Hungarian-American. And there's a lot of funny stuff in the book about Hungary specifically and things that resonated with both of our experiences. But I think before we dive into modern-day Hungary, which is really important in the Soros story, Emily, we should probably start with his origins, right? Because even that is a point of contention now. You have some people who say that he was a Nazi collaborator, which is, which is not true. In fact, he was, a, he was a victim of the Holocaust. Exactly. I think you need to begin at the beginning because you need to understand the world into which Soros was born and that he survived, both because it's key to understanding his outlook on life and on philanthropy, 
and because it's key to understanding some of the, particularly the Hungarian lines about him. So Soros is born in 1930 in the interwar period. Hungary has just lost World War I, and as a result, has lost a tremendous chunk of its territory through the Treaty of Trianon. For a variety of reasons, because the World War I government in Hungary had Jewish advisors and because the communist government that briefly ruled after had people of Jewish descent at the very top, long story short, Jews got blamed. So Zoltan Kovac, who is now the spokesperson, said is reported to have said that for Hungarian Jews, the Holocaust was the most tragic thing. But for other Hungarians, it was the Treaty of Trianon. And I bring this up at the beginning because I think it's important to understand that Hungarian Jews thought of themselves as Hungarian at this point, right? This was a very assimilated population that also felt the pain of the loss of the war and that was blamed for it. So Soros is born into this world. His father had had survived a Russian prison camp during the war and made his way back to Hungary and understood that there were steps that needed to be taken. So before World War II, he changed the family name from Schwartz to Soros to try to make it less, obviously, Jewish-sounding. And then once Hungary, Hungary was originally allied with Nazi Germany, but then the Nazis came and occupied Hungary. And he understands, there, there's a line in Tividar Soros' father, Tividar's book, Masquerade, which is actually a great read. Basically, he says, we couldn't stand up to Hitler's fury, so we had to hide from it. So he gets both forged and borrowed documents, and Soros and his family and friends and friends of friends hide out during the war. At one point, Soros was hiding out with someone who went to take an accounting of what was in a Jewish person's house, which is where this story that Soros was a Nazi collaborator comes from. And I really have to say, I, I want to stress that of all of the you know myths and conspiracy theories and rumors that I have heard about him, that to me is the ugliest, right? That somebody who survived this horrible, oppressive, hateful regime would be called a collaborator with it when he was a teenager trying to survive. Anyway, he, he did survive. So he survives Nazi rule, makes it out of socialist Hungary, and goes to study in London. And I think that it's extremely important to note that this experience, right, of making it out of two regimes in which there's a right way to think and a wrong way to think, in which there's a right way to be and a wrong way to be, in which the very fact of who you are can literally get you killed, that that happened during his formative years. And these lessons really shape the way that he grows up. As an adult, right? So one thing that that comes through really clearly in the book is that his experiences, his his trauma as a youth really opened his eyes to the dangers of right-wing nationalism in addition to the dangers of authoritarianism writ large, uh, right? Which is um, not unfamiliar or uncommon. My, my grandparents were both Holocaust survivors as well on my mom's side. And my grandfather, you, you can see, I, I didn't, my grandmother died before I was born, but my grandfather, when I talked to him, you could really see the political influence of the experience of being persecuted and in their case, being in, in death camps and put on death marches, right? It would manifest in small ways, like refusing to buy German cars, and also in big ways, in profoundly orienting the way that that he thought about and approached politics, or and how he picked issues that he cared about, and what overall shaped his frame of political interventions. And now Soros is is a little bit different, right? Because my grandfather came to the United States and became a furrier, but Soros came to the United States. And eventually, after a stop in London, he became an incredibly successful financier, right? Real real mm -hmm. difference in orders of magnitude of power yeah. <laughs> in, in these two cases. 
But he chose to use that influence that he built up in the financial world to act on these beliefs that, that grew out of his experiences, as well as his schooling in London. Right. So in this stop in London, he studies at the London School of Economics under a tutor by the name of Karl Popper. Karl Popper wrote this book called Open Society and Its Enemies. And the vastly oversimplified version is that, like, Zach, neither you nor I has a perfect understanding. I but mean, maybe, speak for yourself here. But no. Right. <laughs> um, but, okay, so, so you do, but I don't. <laughs> and if I had another podcast host, they wouldn't. But in this conversation, we can come to a more perfect understanding, right? And this appealed to him, I think, for obvious reasons, right? There are these totalitarian regimes that thought they knew absolute truth. They didn't. So he he starts a financial career in London, makes his way to New York, sets up his own hedge fund, becomes extremely wealthy, and then has this moment where he's running through the streets of London and he's under all this pressure and, and he's worried about his health in his own telling, has this moment where he's like, I'm making all this money and what is it, what is it all for? I don't want to die just because I've made money, I want to do something with it. And he says that what he really cared about was this idea of an open society. And this is sort of where the philanthropic part starts. And in 1979, he goes from just being this very successful person in finance to a very successful person in philanthropy. So I want to drill down on, on the point about Popper, who whose book I, I actually really like too, though I think he's a little unfair to Plato. Um, I, I suppose we can, we can bracket Plato for the moment. Uh, and I, I think one theme that comes out in your treatment is that Soros saw Popper's argument as not just a, a political statement, right? It isn't just about how you should organize society. It's a statement about the inherent limitations of human psychology in the way that you were just describing. Mm-hmm. Like because no one person can have perfect knowledge, nobody should – pretend or act like they do even in their private life. So so right there, right in that insight, you see something that spans his work, not just his his philanthropy work where it manifests in terms of a commitment to democracy and human rights, but also his investing work where he seemed to, unlike a lot of other investors, have a lot of skepticism about the rationality of the market and of individuals who attempted to manage markets. This is a, a great point because in many ways, I think that Soros's financial and philanthropic lives are at odds, right? Because on the one hand, you're making all of this money and you're a powerful enough investor and speculator to shape world markets. And then on the other hand, you're trying to create more equitable conditions in these societies. However, the common thread between them is exactly, exactly this, this idea that one can never know the perfect truth. And also one can never know what the consequences of one's actions are going to be. So basically he had this theory of Reflexivity, he called it, which, again, to oversimplify, says that like people are acting as though these markets are rational and then they're making choices based on that, but they're not rational. They also have human choice, which feeds into all of this, right? So basically creating side effects that people are not watching closely for. And he understood that and so could look more closely for them. An example of this, I mean, his most famous move is the shorting of the, the British pound, and basically, that was a case in which he had his eyes open for human behavior impacting this financial world. So that is a great case because I had heard Soros referred to as the man who broke the Bank of England, as I referred to a little bit ago. I didn't really know what that meant because mm-hmm. finance is not my area of expertise. I, I got most of it from the book, but can you walk us through a little bit like what he did, when he did it, and why it's so reputation-defining for him in financial circles? Yeah. So basically, Britain had entered this thing called the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, and your currency couldn't become too valuable or too like not valuable. It had to stay within a certain band. 
And Germany was very wary of inflation because of German unification and so didn't want to make too many adjustments to its own currency to help keep the pound in the band. But basically what this meant was that if changes within the European financial system were not made, Britain was going to end up, the pound was going to end up crashing out. And basically Soros created the conditions where it had to. So in finance, you can take a long position where you hold on to an investment with the idea that it's going to increase in value, or you can short something. When you short something, you are selling something that you don't actually own with the intention of buying it later on for lower value. And But just by selling it, you are creating downward pressure. Basically, um, shorting something creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. If other players in the market take a contrary position, right, like if I go to short and then everybody else goes long and it becomes more valuable, that can be ruinous. But the reason that this was such a, a smart bet, and you saw it was a smart bet, is that because it was in a band, even if like their bet was wrong, it could only go so high, right? But if it crashed out, there was basically no floor. So there was a ceiling, but no floor. And what he realized was that Germany was not going to step in to save the pound, was not going to change the value of its own mark to keep the pound in the band. And so the pound crashed out. And there are some people who say, including, interestingly, people who worked in the German bank at the time who refused to send in the cavalry, who say that this put us on the road to Brexit because it brought the pound out of this common financial group with other European countries. What were the immediate consequences for the UK? Right, like when when you talk about really devaluing the pound, like lowering its value, which is ultimately what Soros's actions did in the short term. Like, what did that mean for British people? Well, the irony is that they say that um, Black Wednesday led to White Wednesday because Black Wednesday being the day that Britain crashed out of the European exchange rate mechanism and had to face kind of face the music. Um, but this forced the government to put in place the economic reforms that needed to be put in place, and that ultimately led the country to a more sound place financially. And White Wednesday just being this new, brighter financial <laughs> situation. So they say that Black Wednesday led to White Wednesday because now that they were out of the ERM, they were able to take financial decisions that turn things around for them. But, you know, people's currency became less valuable, right? Like people in Britain had money that was now worth less because Soros shorted the pound. And not just Soros, but he, they were the leading, kind of the leading speculators in this. And so... People suffered, right? I, what I'm trying to get to, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yes. Like yes. this isn't just abstract playing around with money. It's that Soros enriched himself, yes, and other people lost out. Yes, and an even clearer example of this comes later in the decade in Asia when they did it again in Thailand, and this is, I mean, like that was a developing economy, right? The, the, where people lost money because people decided to enrich themselves. Now. There are some who argue, well, Soros could have gone bigger and Soros, you know, didn't do this in South Korea because he liked the South Korean government. But the reality is that there was an Asian financial crisis and that Soros and his colleagues gained money off of the, although in the end, because of the position they took in Indonesia, it actually ended up being a wash. But but in Thailand, they made money, right? And so this is kind of what I'm, what I'm talking about when I'm saying that some, including myself, argue that his financial position and his philanthropic position are at odds. Right. So at the same time, when he's doing all of this currency speculating that really made him the billionaire that he is, right? Like he mm -hmm. made his money, his largest fortune, on the backs of messing around with national economies. He was also intervening at scale in a variety of different other countries' political developments through mm -hmm. the Open Society Foundation. Uh, it's often obscured what exactly he did politically. My understanding is that what he was trying to do is to create 
the underlying conditions for democracy and for an open society in a lot of uh, different countries, but mostly and early on, given his background, focusing on Hungary and other Central and Eastern European countries, right? He was trying to create the conditions for a transition away from the communist system that was dominant in the late 80s when, and mid-80s when he was doing a lot of this work and around the time in the 90s after the decline of the Soviet Union, uh, when he was doing this currency speculation, he was at the same time trying to build up Hungary and other different countries in that area in terms of like their long-term cultural and political trajectory. Absolutely. He started in 1984 in Hungary and kind of grew from there. And And Basically, the project was, can you create societies that are based on civic participation and not ethnic identity? So I think one thing that he saw very clearly was that, particularly after the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc, was that nationalism could very easily take the place of the socialist power, right? And Wow, someone was a little prescient on that one. Right, right. And like, how can we instead create the conditions for liberal democracy? And he did that by, well, in Hungary, first of all, his earliest move was to pay for photocopiers, which loosened the state's grip on the dissemination of information. And so he said it, it made dissidents out of people who wouldn't have otherwise been dissidents. And I should also say here that at the very beginning, there was something mysterious about them by design because Soros didn't want his foundations to be used by people. He had seen from his own experience in London how he had been able to like game the philanthropic system and he didn't want that. And I think, you know, speaking of things that you cannot foresee and consequences of actions that you do not predict, this element of mystery, I think, has ended up um, maybe hurting as much as it's helped. But before we get there, um, so yes, he was in Hungary, he was in Poland, um, he tried to start in China and was accused of being basically an American intelligence asset, so that didn't work. In Russia, he was uh, where Open Society was kicked out several years ago from when we're having this conversation. Um, he poured money into science and education and indeed at one point tried to like act as a go-between between Yeltsin and the U.S. government and, and tried to like write up an economic plan for Russia and all of this was to create conditions in which, be it through debating clubs or putting on, you know, arts festivals or paying for milk for schools in Hungary, all of this was to create the conditions in which everybody has a fair shot at participating in society. Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, we've been talking about the success and actions of Soros in the past, but that was then. So the question is, why is he still around now? How did a man who became famous in another era, a very, very different political era, become enemy number one for right-wing nationalists across the Atlantic today? That's after the break. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So here's the critical thing, I think, is the reason that Soros has stuck around, right? Because well, all of what we've been talking about right now happened in the 1980s and the 1990s, right? Like mm -hmm. this, this is a man who, who became famous in a previous era where politics was very different than it is now. And yet today, he is the number one boogeyman for a lot of people on the American right. He is the 
principal enemy of the Hungarian government. Vladimir Putin rails against him, right? This man is enemy number one for the broader nationalist right across North America and Europe. So how did he go from somebody who was like, you know, interested in a certain kind of political development that many people would describe as, you know, just basically pro-democracy, as well as financial speculation that, frankly, a lot of people on the right would be pretty comfortable with, to, like, enemy number one of the global nationalist movement? I think there are there are sort of three moments in the making of Soros. So the first is the quote-unquote breaking of the bank in 92 that we've talked about that he said that he used to really bring attention to his, these causes, in, especially in Eastern Europe. So he goes from becoming a, a financier and philanthropist to being a famous figure. Then in 2004, Soros becomes a major political donor. He had started working in the United States philanthropically in the late 1990s, but it was around George W. Bush's re-election that he becomes involved financially politically because he saw George W. Bush's re-election as a major threat to this concept of an open society. He thought Bush's with us or against us, and we have this perfect understanding of democracy, et cetera, was fundamentally incompatible with what he was trying to do. Obviously, Soros lost that bet and that uh, George W. Bush was re-elected. But if you go back and read the book that he wrote in 2004 to kind of accompany this political giving, he talks about Fox News as a propaganda outlet and basically as being disinterested in in truth and in this project that he was so interested in, which is everybody trying to improve their like cognitive understanding, which is interesting to go back and read now, given kind of where we're at uh, as a society and, and consumers of media. Um, but anyway, so this, I think, sort of turns him into a more partisan figure, even though that's separate from his philanthropic giving, it turned him into a more partisan figure in the eyes of people here in the United States. Then the third moment is the migrant crisis in 2015. Coming out of the Syrian war, there are this influx of migrants and refugees in Europe, and there's a fear amongst Europeans about this, you know, this new unknown. And there's also an opportunity seen by people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, that this is something that can be politically convenient. So Orban had come back to power. He had been prime minister in the early 2000s. He comes back to power. And at first, basically, you know, I think he and other politicians in Europe realized that while they could continue bashing their former political opponents, that actually only serves to empower their political opponents, right? Far better to vilify this kind of obvious other right? A migrant who looks different, speaks different language, maybe prays differently, eats different food, who's now amongst you, and create a boogeyman who's responsible for that migrant being there. Although, of course, Soros was not, in fact, responsible for the migrants being there. And so this is when it really takes off. And then, you know, it goes back and forward across the ocean. And in some cases, that's because there are, you know, political actors who are working in in many of these countries where Soros conspiracy theory spread, and part of it is because of the internet, and in part it's because that people see that this works. So do I think that it's coincidental that, you know, you have European leaders saying that Soros is responsible for migrants, and then here we have, in 2018 midterms, you have people speculating that maybe he's responsible for the migrant caravan? No, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that people realized, oh, this is an effective political tactic that we can use for our own power. You know, I'm I'm glad you framed it in that way, because I was all set to ask you as a follow-up, right? Well, these aren't just mysterious processes, right? They don't just happen. There are people who link them. Mm -hmm. There are individual mm -hmm. actors who make that choice. And I think one of the particularly interesting characters in the book 
on this point is this guy, uh, Arthur Finkelstein is his name, right? Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about Arthur Finkelstein and how he bridges the American and Hungarian right and his role in the construction of Soros as, as a sort of global monster. Yeah, so he was a, a New York Republican operative who worked for Netanyahu. Netanyahu introduced Arthur Finkelstein to Orban, and then together they kind of created, I should say, you know, I think there's one narrative that's like, and then Arthur Finkelstein brought Soros to Hungary. Actually, there had been Soros conspiracy theories in Hungary for 20, 30 years, right? But what Finkelstein and Orban did together was realize like, oh, we can dust off this kind of old trope in, in, of, of Soros, right? Of Soros as being this other who's trying to undermine our society, and we can make political hay from that. And then from there, you know, Finkelstein's also based in New York, and, and the former ambassador to Hungary under Trump was also close to Finkelstein. And so you have kind of this Israel to Hungary to the United States <laughs> triangle <laughs> for these conspiracy theories to travel. So what's fascinating to me about Finkelstein, and again, this is a little bit parochial on my part, but, you know, he's Jewish. I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. Soros is Jewish. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of the language that is used to describe Soros is, to my mind, just, just flatly and obviously anti-Semitic, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Orban has this famous speech where he's talking about how we are facing an enemy that hides in the shadows and is international. This is not a direct quote. I'm paraphrasing. It hides in the shadows and it has international reach and isn't straightforward. And we all know who he's talking about, though mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. the Hungarian leader denies that he was speaking about Jews at the time, but he was using Soros as a stand-in to talk about Jews. Now, if I'm Arthur Finkelstein, I'm fully aware, you have to be fully aware of the anti-Semitic implications of standing up a Jewish financier as the enemy that a government needs to fight against, reduce their influence because they're corrupting society from the shadows. Right? That is the most classic of classic anti-Semitic tropes. Is, is there any record on how, how he resolves that, on how, how that tension plays out in someone's mind when he's working across borders? Do sort of I thing? don't think they think of it as a tension at all. Because if you think about, and, and I've, I've, I'm also Jewish, so I've thought about this a lot, right? Like, how could you, how could you get help give legs to something that is so clearly anti-Semitic and so clearly hurting people, right? And putting people at, at risk. I'm sure that you've had these conversations with Hungarian diplomats too, where or Hungarian officials where they turn around and say, well, look, we have this great friendship with Netanyahu, so how could we possibly be anti-Semitic? And Netanyahu says it's okay, and he doesn't like Soros, so obviously this isn't about anti-Semitism. And the way in which, in particular, Jewish people who engage in this, I think, justify it, is that they don't—and and not just Jewish people, but people who then echo those lines are, well, he's not really Jewish. This allows them to do two things, Right. It allows them to, on the one hand, distance themselves from accusations of anti-Semitism by saying, well, Soros doesn't have a good relationship with Israel, and Soros isn't religious, and Soros doesn't give to explicitly Jewish philanthropic causes. So therefore, I'm saying these things, and it's not about anti-Semitism, it's about I don't like that he's a globalist, which is an anti-Semitic right. dog whistle. Yeah. That's fine. But on the other hand, they're still blowing the dog whistles. So they get the benefit of everybody hearing exactly what you and I hear, right? And, which is what makes these conspiracy theories so potent, that they're based on this bigotry that we can all recognize, even if you don't come out and say the word Jew. They still get to do that, and then they get to turn around and say, well, I didn't mean that because he's not what I think of as a Jew. And it's like, well, first of all, you're not, <laughs> that's not up to you. And second of all, you understand that that's what other people hear when they hear these words. 
There's an interesting parallel here to, I, I don't know if you've been following this, the Marjorie Taylor Greene situation where she talked about the, the Rothschilds oh, yes. having a space laser mm-hmm. that started the California wildfires. The Rothschilds are a famous banking family that's Jewish and has been the subject of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories for centuries now. And what's remarkable is that she recently said, my comment about them controlling a space laser that started the California wildfires, which bracket that, hilarious, Um my comment about that couldn't have been anti-Semitic because I didn't know that the Rothschilds were Jewish. And, like, I don't know if that's true. Part of me is very suspicious that it is. But even if we grant her the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, she didn't know this very obvious and very famous anti-Semitic dog whistle was in fact anti-Semitic, it strikes me as operating in the same way as a lot of these Soros conspiracy theories, which have now become central to the Hungarian state's Narrative, right? In Hungary, the far right controls the government. Viktor Orban is, for all intents and purposes, uh, an elected authoritarian who initially won office through a free and open vote and has worked systematically to make it impossible for the opposition to fairly compete against him in elections. But he's used this boogeyman of Soros, not only connecting it to the hated Muslim other, but even implicitly for people who don't know he's Jewish or aren't fully aware of the the Jewish connection here, it plays into these tropes that are really foundational in Western culture. Yes. Right? We, we all have imbibed the anti-Semitic conspiracy narrative. And th- that really helps the government play into people's prejudices. A lot of the time they know, and some of the time they don't, in terms of building durable support for a government that has difficulty defending its own record. Yes. So two points on this. First of all, I think that's a great parallel. And in, in all of these cases, it's like, but you said it. So obviously you understood that there was some, first of all, you're an adult. You're an adult. Second yeah. of all, you said it. So clearly you understood that there was some, like the, the name Rothschild didn't just come to you, right? And and third of all, in both cases, it's like, well, people have been explaining to you that this is anti-Semitic, right? And this is my thing with the Hungarian government. I have watched American officials explain to their Hungarian counterparts in like events in D.C., this is anti-Semitic. So you should stop because you have a better case if you just don't bring this up. But they continue to do it. And so even if we grant them that that intent was not there originally, which, again, the the name didn't just come to you for no reason, right? It's been explained to you and you're still doing it. The other thing that I want to say is that because you mentioned vilifying Muslims, I think this is a very important point. Anti-Semitic conspiracy theories do not only vilify Jews and make Jews less safe, although that does happen, right? In 2018, somebody sent Soros a pipe bomb in the mail. And also that was the year that there was the shooting of the synagogue in Squirrel Hill in Pennsylvania. The shooter was purportedly mad that Jews were bringing in migrants. And so I don't think it's, it's not difficult for me to see the connection between all of what we're talking about and that. But it also serves to strip agency from other minority groups. So when you were saying that a Jewish billionaire is bringing migrants to your shores, first of all, you're vilifying the Jewish billionaire and you're saying that he is trying to denigrate the society, which why is he doing that? It's because the Jew is the perpetual other who, of course, just wants to see the nation fail, right? That's an old trope. But you're also saying that these migrants and refugees who are seeking shelter from horrible, from war, that they're not coming here of their own accord. Similarly, when people this past summer said, oh, Soros is behind Black Lives Matter, well, what you're doing is you're saying, first of all, that this person is trying to, again, corrode our democracy or whatever, which why would he want to do that unless he's not really a part of the democracy? Um, And you're also saying that people don't really have a reason to be out in the streets protesting 
against state-backed violence against Black people. So it vilifies the one and it strips agency of the other. And that's part of why it's so effective. And, you know, in in Hungary, it has extra resonance because Soros played such a huge role in the transition from communism in terms of standing up and supporting Hungarian civil society, right? Like, it's hard to appreciate, or at least I didn't until I, I read your book, Emily, that he really was at the heart of what was happening in Hungary in terms of creating the cultural scene, the intellectual scene, creating Central European University, and all of those things, and, and was a, a much more prominent figure in Hungary than, than anywhere else, even though at that point he was living in the United States, right? And so that helped the campaign against him because, you know, he had name recognition already. You could point to this guy and be like, well, you know about him. You know he's influential. All we need to convince you of is that his influence is bad and dangerous. And that's been hugely effective for, for the Orban government, right? There's a reason that they keep fighting against Soros and they keep passing laws that make it difficult for him to operate uh, in any capacity in their country. And not just for him to operate, right? Like also, and in some ways more importantly, because Soros is, you know, he's in New York, he is a very wealthy man, he's going to be fine. The nonprofit whose employees are now accused of breaking the law if they try to help an asylum seeker under the Stop Soros laws, are they going to be fine? You know, in 2017, I wrote a piece on Soros for the first time and really did not have trouble speaking to NGOs in Hungary. And then in 2019, went back to report for this book. I was told, not by all, but by some, I'm really sorry, I just can't speak to you. And I got it. It's because the cost of speaking about Soros is high for them. And because the cost of just, you know, I had somebody who said to me that basically if you're a nonprofit, what you have is your credibility. And that's what's being taken away. And it's being taken away here and in Hungary and around the world from people who are trying to criticize the government. You know, and I want to make very clear, I'm not against criticizing Soros for what he has done. I'm not even against criticizing the concept, right? Like the idea that this one person has so much influence to play the starring role from across the seas even if it's a political cause that I agree with, right? Like, even if I think, okay, liberal democracy is good, should the foundations for it be laid by this one guy? But we should be, like, we should be criticizing what's actually happening and not engaging in conspiracy theory that serves to vilify an individual and a group of people, that being Jewish people, um, and also strip credibility from people who are trying to do serious work to help other people within these different countries. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about some of those legitimate criticisms because I think there, there's a number of serious ones that we alluded to earlier in the show as well. But I wanted to ask about the transatlantic nature of these criticisms, right? The reason I found the, the Hungary section so clear and it made sense that they picked on Soros was this profile that he had there, right? But in the U.S., as you were just talking about, he's also become this huge villain, right? Like right after the Pittsburgh shooting. So just like a few days after a man who blamed Jews for migrants shot up a synagogue, Trump, in a press conference, said that George Soros was probably behind the migrant caravan coming into the United States, right? And he wasn't the only one. Marjorie Taylor Greene had also said similar things around the same time, and and lots of Republicans uh, in prominent places had accused Soros of being behind mass migration. And to me, like, there's obviously a level of callousness here right, these conspiracy theories had had literally just gotten people killed, and now you're repeating them, that I have a difficult 
time getting past. But there's also a, a part that I think is kind of unclear, which is how he became so prominent in the U.S. when most of his activities, barring a very interesting stint working on drug policy in Baltimore, where he was really ahead of his time, barring that, though, and, and the intervention in the 2004 election, he was not a huge figure in the United States, right? It's not his main area of operation, yet somehow he's become the sort of conservative evil twin uh, from their point of view of the Kochs and the Mercers who give them a lot of money and fund their foundations. So I think I think 2004 was huge. Several years later in 2010, Glenn Beck did three hours of just about how bad Soros is. So it has, it has been there. And then I think 2018, you see the US kind of singing from the Hungarian sheet music about Soros and migration. I mean, in some ways it makes sense because he lives here, he works here, He's known in political circles because of his political donations. But in other ways, it was taking something that had been popularized in Russia and in Hungary and bringing it here. And I think I mean, part of the reason that I wanted to write the book is that it seems like there's a generation of people for whom Soros is first and foremost a name associated with conspiracy theories, as opposed to a person who I think if we understand him and what he's been about, we can kind of understand the struggle for liberal democracy in the past you know, 30 years around the world. And and the other thing is that I think, I once spoke to a Slovak person who said, um, like, you couldn't come up with a more perfect villain. In Hungary, he's the Hungarian who left and he lives in New York and he works in finance. In Slovakia, he's Hungarian, which because Hungarians are an ethnic minority in Slovakia, some people don't like Hungarians and, and everywhere he's Jewish. And I do think that there's a version of that in the United States too, right? Like he's in New York, he's in finance, he gives to the Democrats, he's Jewish. And the other thing is that this coincides with this moment that we're in now, in which we're really, like, to me, and I don't want to get too political on your podcast, but there, no, we're, we're, we're in a moment now where we're basically fighting over who gets to participate in democracy. So when Tucker Carlson says, you know, Soros is hijacking democracy, maybe that's because he doesn't think that it's right for a billionaire to donate to district attorney elections, right, to progressive prosecutors who are running in those elections. But on the other hand, like hijacking democracy from whom? <laughs> hijacking democracy for whom? Um, who gets to participate in the democratic project? Uh, to me, part of the reason why Soros, out of all the philanthropic billionaires out there, gets all of this attention is not only because he's Jewish and not only because he works in finance, but also because his project is fundamentally about who gets to participate in our society and trying to make it such that more people can participate. And if you look at who is criticizing him, what they have in common is that they have a very limited idea of who should be able to participate. Yeah, there's a very high-level political point here, I think, that you're you're getting to, which is that Soros's ultimate aim, right, going back from his days as Karl Popper's student and f- naming his organization the Open Society Foundation, right, his ultimate aim is to preserve and protect democracy, right? But democracy itself is a contested concept, in two ways, right? It's it's contested the way you were just describing, right? Who gets to participate inside a democratic system? And it's contested broadly in the sense of is democracy itself desirable? Right. Right. And increasingly our politics are orienting around those two questions. Not just who should participate, but whether or not the system should allow competing voices to win elections at all. And in Hungary, the government has answered that. They claim to be a quote-unquote illiberal democracy, but no one who is a serious observer of Hungarian politics thinks that they are 
democratic anymore, unless you're really, really in hoc to regime propaganda, right? It's a government that has attempted to rig the system fully. And in the United States, we're increasingly seeing efforts on, unfortunately, one side of the political aisle to make it more difficult for their opponents to compete in fair elections. And so democracy itself is becoming contested. And if democracy is contested, then Soros himself can't really stay on the outside, right? He may have jumped the gun in 2004. Bush's re-election was not actually an extinction-level event for American liberal democracy. But he was ahead of the curve in saying that there was a threat coming from nationalism down the line that would challenge the foundations of a democratic system itself. And if you believe that, if you really believe that, like he does based on his own personal experience— then you're going to come into conflict with extremely powerful political actors. Mm -hmm. And when you're extremely wealthy, you're going to become a high-profile target mm -hmm. of those actors as well. And I think I, one thing I want to note is that a criticism of him that is made by many different people, but the Hungarians make it particularly effectively, actually, is that he is not elected, right? Like, nobody elected him. Nobody elected these NGOs. There should be some rules that they have to answer to because they, the electeds, answer to the Hungarian people. Okay, but then how robust is your democracy, right? How, like, are, are we answering to all of the Hungarian people, all of the people in Hungary, or just the ones who are Fidesz voters? You know, here in the United States, are we answering to, you know, Trump was elected, was he answering to all Americans, or was he answering to a minority of American voters? It's about a civic or ethnic vision of democracy, right? Is democracy everybody who gets to participate because they are a part of the society, or is it people who are of one race or religion or belief system? And I think that that's where it becomes more, more complicated than just, we were elected, you weren't. So we're going to take one more short break now. But when we come back, we're going to talk about a different aspect of Soros' life. Now, obviously, he's a billionaire. He's been able to do a lot of good with his money. But should one man, based on his random personal contacts and individual particular interests, get to decide what's worth funding to such a great extent? Should one man have that much power over democracy? More on that after the break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves? From surveillance to social media, reproductive rights to criminal justice reform. Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. 
New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Soros is incredibly wealthy, and he got wealthy in large part by uh, messing with national economies, doing real social harm in the process and making himself rich. You can debate whether or not bad things would have happened anyway had Soros not been involved. But it's very clear, like if you look at the causal chain of events, Hmm? that he played a role in serious financial problems in the UK and in the broader East Asian region. And – he has this really interesting way of rationalizing this. Right. Where he says, like, it's okay to play inside the rules, right, meaning the law. And so if I'm going to do damage by virtue of my activity in the economic sector, as long as it's legal, it's not really my problem. My goal as a political actor is to change the rules. And he is, to his credit, uh, a critic of unfettered capitalism and a supporter of policies that would actually hurt his own bottom line personally. Mm -hmm. But – I don't know if you can cleanly separate those two spheres of activity. I, I, yeah, I think you can't. And the reason that I think you can't is that he is too powerful a player financially to say, well, I'm just playing by the set of rules financially because what you're doing in the financial realm has political and societal implications. So I don't, you know, that's his prerogative to say that there's a clear delineation between the two. I personally do not see that delineation. And I, and I think on some level, like he does, at least he has made statements that suggest that at least he thinks that the rules by which he is playing should be changed. For example, calling for a wealth tax or saying, you know, we should really have basically like openly questioning whether the kind of speculation in which he's engaged should be permissible. But the fundamental tension here is can a billionaire philanthropist create a more open society, right? Like can this one person who has this concentrated money and this concentrated power and who just by putting his thumb on the scale so changes the scale – can that person create conditions where everybody can fairly and equitably participate? And the answer, I think, is yes to a point, right? And at that point, the tension can't hold anymore, and it has to give. And to be honest, I kind of think we're at that point now. Expand on that, right? Like, what what would it mean in, in concrete terms to be at that point? I mean, it, it would mean taxation and, and redistribution. Because, you know, as great as it is, like, there are causes that Soros supports that I— I'm sympathetic to. Um, I think it's great that he, you know, gave money to organizations that are fighting for racial justice. I think it's great that he gave money in the 1990s to places here in the States that, uh, in Baltimore, that wanted to look at drug use as a medical and not a criminal problem. What I think would be even more great is if people could empower themselves rather than waiting for this kind of benevolent, powerful figure to give them those resources. You know, I think, I kind of think that that's like leveling up in liberal democracy. And you can certainly raise questions about Soros' giving choices on those terms too, right? Like even if you support a lot of the causes that he has defended, one thing that's fairly consistent, not entirely consistent, but fairly consistent throughout his giving patterns is that he doesn't really do humanitarian work. He did a few times, but his general view is we should try to create societies that don't need assistance in performing basic tasks like distributing medicine. Yeah, exactly. And his thing is that by the time you're giving humanitarian aid, you failed. The big exception to this is the war in Bosnia in the 90s. And that was because to him, it was as clear an example as you could get of ethnic versus civic understandings of society. And originally, interestingly, he had not set up open societies in what was then Yugoslavia because he thought that they had an understanding of what he was trying to do already. But obviously with the dissolution of Yugoslavia, you you have 
nationalism, and nationalism captured by political actors and for political purposes, I should say, come crashing to the forefront. And this is, you know, it's very easy for me to sit here and do this podcast with you and say, like, I don't think that he should have all this power. But then you speak to people who lived through the Bosnian War who are like, well, thank goodness he did because we had water and lights, right? And we had newsprint and we had literary festivals and things that let us feel human during this horribly dehumanizing time. And you had these various national governments and the UN failing people. And so am I going to sit here and say, you know, everything that Soros has done has been hypocritical and bad and he shouldn't have had this power at all? No, I'm not. I'm going to say that it's a mixed record, that there are times when, you know, that even if I feel kind of like have qualms about the fact that they were relying on a billionaire philanthropist, that it was good that he was able to provide for people at that time. But that now, as we look back on 90 years of his life and decades of work, we should ask ourselves if we want to be dependent on on one person or on a few people. And and to be honest, I think, you know, I, I end the book with uh, these students protesting at Central European University over how the administration, certain choices the administration was making and how transparent they were being. And I thought to myself that that was great. Like that was the project, right? You've given these people tools to question, and now they're questioning you. And so, like, to me, that's the fulfillment of the project. And I'm not trying to say, like, criticizing Soros is really what Soros would want, um, but it kind of is. Like, if you take this to its logical extension, its logical conclusion, you kind of can't have the billionaire philanthropy that brought us to the point where we're questioning billionaire philanthropy. Right. And, and in that spirit, that's what bugged me about his reticence to do humanitarian assistance in the book. He understands that there's this like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in politics where you need to set up certain baselines in order to produce good outcomes down the line. Mm. But it strikes me as very rich person living in the United States to think that the things that need to come first are things like university education Mm -hmm. rather than like eradicating diseases, Mm. right? Like if you compare him to say Bill Gates – Bill Gates is also a billionaire who also gives away a lot of money. Gates has has played a major role in the eradication of, of disease and the alleviation of poverty uh, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. This is a very concrete set of track records and one that, like, according to the best political science research that we have, is likely to produce good political outcomes down the line, right? Like poverty and high levels of disease are associated with civil war and government breakdown. Like, these are burdens on states that – prevent the development and formation of more effective governance structures. Mm. But Soros, he has a very different vision of what makes a society successful and what's likely to make it successful and free down the line, which makes me wonder about the linkage between having a lot of money and understanding what life is like for a poor person today and what the real, like the material underpinnings of democracy and of an open society. Hmm. That's an interesting point. Although I'm not sure that, I think that there are also parts of Bill Gates giving record that could, and indeed have been. Oh yeah. Have been criticized. I'm not saying Bill Gates is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think, yeah, I think one of the things that I was uncomfortable with and am uncomfortable with is that even if you're like the most well-educated, most erudite, most sympathetic person, you're still an outsider coming into the, like you're still Soros coming into Baltimore. Baltimore in 97. You're still Soros going into Bosnia, you know, which was by and large not a country where people have the kind of wealth that you have. And people there would say, well, he put everything in the hands of people who were here who do have better understanding of the situation. Um, But then this is a whole other thing because you then empower a certain set of people, like you're empowering a certain set of 
people and they're people who you happen to know. So in some ways, you're recreating inequities in society, even as you're trying to ameliorate them, which I understand is not exactly what you were asking, but I do think it's, it's related. Well, I mean, it all, it all comes back to this question of the judgment of the man dispersing the funds. Right, exactly. Another theme in the book that I found really, really telling about Soros as a person is a lot of his philanthropic endeavors grew out of like just meeting somebody, either randomly or, or through some kind of business connection or something, right? He had, like the Bosnia example mm-hmm. you were telling, he was at a dinner and he met somebody from Bosnia mm-hmm. and, and talked to the person from Bosnia for a while and that sparked his interest in getting involved in the war, right? It seems like a lot of this is driven by his own personal ties and experiences. And that is obviously subject to the type of problems that he himself would admit plague human judgment by virtue of a sort of Karl Popper, mm-hmm. Popperian epistemological critique of knowledge, and one that that more broadly suggests that billionaire philanthropy is always going to have blind spots, it's always going to have biases, and that the purpose of government in a lot of ways is to aggregate people's knowledge across different realms and different spheres and bring them together to make better or at least more egalitarian and fair judgments, Mm -hmm. if not ones that are always substantively better at the end, right? And it it makes me – I'm really ambivalent about what I'm saying because I agree with your point that Soros is really, in a lot of places, has done really, really good work, right? right? And is a really, really valuable person. I don't want to say, well, because uh, there are problems with our current capitalist model, it's bad that he's giving his money away. I think that's a ludicrous position. But there are system-level questions about one that puts these decisions Mm -hmm. in the hands of somebody like him. Right, 100%. And there are so many people in the book who ran this open society in this country at this time or who were involved with the university at some point or who worked with him this year and who I was like, oh, just such interesting people. (laughs) And then they introduced him to other interesting people. But at a certain point, they were still all representative of, you know, like this upper middle class intelligentsia of various societies. So in Yugoslavia, you ended up having people who were typically of of more means, maybe a little nostalgic for Yugoslavia in Hungary and in Poland, they were of one political slant or happened to be of one political slant, right? So you you do end up kind of creating, not a class, but, but he's empowering people in those countries, but those people are necessarily like so much more empowered than the person next to them because they have the support of this outside billionaire. So the last thing I want to ask you before we uh, wind down our conversation is about how to reconcile the two broad themes we've been discussing. On the one hand, Soros has become a stand-in for a lot of really unseemly and troubling anti-Semitic conspiracy theorizing that helps prop up authoritarian and far-right regimes and parties around the world. So, like, on the one hand, that. On the other hand, he still needs to be criticized Mm -hmm. because his activities are not— above criticism, Mm -hmm. right? He's a rich man who's throwing his influence around and has made uh, demonstrable mistakes in doing so. So how do you talk about the actual problems in his record without helping raise the salience of anti-Soros sentiment that powers the really ugly stuff and the negative consequences that have come to sort of surround the George Soros name? Yeah, I have to be honest. I think You know, I have to say that for people who are genuinely interested in critiquing, I don't think that it's that difficult to do without (laughs) without spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy. You just critique what Soros has actually done and not what he has never done and has no intention of doing. What I mean by that is, I mean, it's the difference between saying 
Soros gave money to this DA race, the district attorney's race, and and I and I don't think the billionaires should be involved in local races. And Soros is hijacking democracy. You know, it's the difference between Soros's money helped pay Georgian salaries after the Rose Revolution, and I'm uncomfortable with one man having that kind of role in a foreign in in any country, rather than Soros fomented revolution. Right. Like there's enough there that you can criticize without either vilifying him or without, and this is also important, without stripping agency from the people who, you know, are actually running in these elections and are actually voting and are actually protesting. So to me, as long as people are focused on on facts, then we can have the conversation and we can try to get to that more perfect truth um, without being derailed by anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Emily's book, The Influence of Soros, uh, which I encourage all of you to, to go out and get. It's really a great read. It's full of these sorts of facts that'll help you understand what Soros actually did on issues like immigration versus what he is accused of having done. Emily, thank you so much for a, a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Amy Drastovska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Liz Kelly Nelson is our executive producer and editorial director of Vox Podcast. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. Thanks so much for listening. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.